Thank you, James. I thought that was a great rapid tour around the energy industry and saves uh, Brenda and myself having to do um, some of the same things, so thank you for that. Um, can everybody hear me? Yes, good. Um, my name's um, Nick Eyre. I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Environmental Change Institute, which, uh, for those of you who've been away from Oxford for more than 20 years, is part of the School of Geography and Environment. I've been, I was a, a both an undergraduate and a postgraduate here in the, uh, in the dim and distant past, um, but have worked in various bits of the energy industry before coming back here four years ago. And the various bits include the Atomic Energy Authority and the Energy Saving Trust, so quite a diverse um, span of, 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 of energy backgr background. My interests now are really in how people use energy and how public policy can affect that, um, but particularly in the context of the big problem we face this century that James has mentioned, which is climate change and how to um, bring the Earth's carbon dioxide emissions back down to a sustainable level. So I make no apology for showing a very similar, starting from a very similar place uh, to, to, to James, that's a global um, uh, uh, energy use by fuel. And I think the big picture is twofold. One, uh, it's going up. Two, um, it's mainly fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas, the big three uh, at the bottom. And the, the, the other point I would make is that it is a bit like an oil tanker, not just in the sense of it's got lots of oil in it, um, but that actually it, the, the, the mix changes very slowly. There's a lot of inertia in this system. So turning that pattern round in a 40-year period to, say, reduce... Uh, global CO2 emissions by a factor two by 2050, which is the sort of number that people talk about to stabilise the climate, is a huge task. And I actually don't think it is a choice between using less energy and changing the sort of energy we, we use. I think all the, uh, all the work that's been done indicates we will need to do both. So... Um, never put an equation in a, in a talk early on is the advice, so I haven't because the mathematicians amongst you will recognise that's an identity and not an equation. Um, <laughs> car car carbon emissions are the product of the carbon to energy ratio, the energy to GDP ratio and GDP, so there's a very simple message. If you want GDP to keep going up and you want carbon emissions to go down, then you, are, you need to do something about either that C over E factor, the carbon ratio, which is essentially the fuel mix, or you need to do something about energy intensity, E over GDP, the energy ratio, which you can think of as being to do with the efficiency with which we use energy. We have to address both of those. Uh, if we don't, we won't succeed in having a livable planet, is the quick message. I'm going to focus now on, on, on the UK and, and focus more on what we can do. Um, I, I just thought I would start by showing you what we've done in the last 35 years or so um, to the energy ratio and the carbon ratio. The carbon ratio has gone down by about 20% in that uh, period of time. Um, that's with a substantial nuclear programme in, 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 in the 70s. It's with uh, a dash to North Sea gas in the 90s. And you can see that ratio is beginning to drift up a, a bit, despite the push for renewables in recent years. Uh, in contrast, the energy ratio, the energy efficiency of the economy, has improved by something like 60% over that period. Um, and so it is a point that I 
uh, like to make that really the energy efficiency of the economy over the last 35 years has delivered three times as much carbon reduction as nuclear power, new renewables and the dash for gas put together. That actually surprises many people, even in the energy industry, that the figures are that stark. Now, I have to admit that the energy GDP ratio is partly influenced by the fact that we've exported much of our manufacturing industry to China and East Asia in that period, but actually a lot of it is also technical efficiency, in, uh, improvement in the efficiency with which we use energy. So I think the big picture is our carbon targets are very tough. Most of you will know that the government is committed to an 80% reduction from 1990 levels by 2050. That's about a 75% reduction from now. Another bit of maths there. We've reduced our emissions 20%. We've got a target of 80%, but we still have to, another 75% to go. These things are multiplicative, not additive. So it's still very difficult, even though we've made some progress. As I said, we probably need to address the energy ratio and the carbon ratio, and historically we've done better at improving the energy ratio than the carbon ratio. I think it does mean that we not only need to think about those choices James showed at the end of his talk between all the different ways of supplying energy, but about how we use energy. And I say we quite deliberately because one of the slides James showed shows that half the energy used in this country now is by us directly in homes, in private transport. The, the, the days when most energy was used by big industry in smokestacks have gone and things are moving in the direction of energy being our responsibility. And it's that thinking that made us uh, set us off on a piece, short piece of research I'm going to describe um, very briefly about just a, a thought experiment. Can we change our lifestyles to a lower energy lifestyle that will help us deliver these ambitious targets? It's published by EarthScan. Um, it's a chapter in that book, so you can all go out and buy that at Blackwell's afterwards if you want. Um, and I'd like to give credit to my, my colleagues who worked on this, uh, Christian Brand and Russell Labry here, and Gillian Annabel Aberdeen and Neil Strachan at University College London, and this is indicative of the way that university research is going. We're working with people around the country and indeed increasingly around the world to address these sorts of questions. What are lifestyles? Well, um, suffice to say, the social science literature has at least as many definitions as there are social scientists who work on lifestyles. Um, a precise definition is difficult, but I, I think we know a lifestyle when we see one. Um, <laughs> that, I think you would agree, is not a low-energy lifestyle. I, I really love this slide. Firstly, it gets a laugh. But secondly, actually, it does make a serious point. How do we know about, what do we know about that lifestyle? Well, we know somebody is, is, is using a high-carbon, high-energy technology. But it's funny because they're using it in a, in a way that, to this audience, looks singularly inappropriate. So there's a combination of technology and behaviour which somehow defines um, this lifestyle. Um, and So lifestyles are... Influence and are influenced by technology, but they're also influenced by culture. Which country is that taken in? Yeah, you, the, you, I, you know, it's so, it's so obvious that you, you probably recognise that within, within one second. So culture is really important. Now, culture can change. Culture does change. 
20 years ago, young people used to walk down the street talking to each other. Now they walk down the street talking to other people who are not there. So things change over those sorts of decadal timescales, and presumably they can change in the way that we use energy. So in the lower life's energy lifestyle scenario, we were looking at and asking, well, what sorts of social change could encourage greater use of green technologies in, in buildings and personal transport and different behavioural patterns in the way that they're used. Now, I say it's about us, but of course, people do not do these things in isolation uh, from the rest of the world. So we also need to think about public policy and we need to think about uh, the infrastructures that encourage or discourage different ways of using energy. And if you think about the picture in the last slide, if the US had somewhat higher gas taxes and built decent public transport systems, then you might see less of that sort of behaviour. So there's an iteration between lifestyle and public policy. We made some um, hand-waving assumptions about lifestyle change. We looked at the sorts of lifestyle change that are feasible. Um, if people cycle in Oxford and Amsterdam, then they can cycle in, in London and Leicester as well. Those sorts of assumptions. So we looked at internal temperatures in houses that were at mid-1990 levels. We looked at not, not falling levels of appliance use, but just stabilisation. Um, we looked at a world where people actually do insulate their houses... Um, and where heating systems pick up some of the new technologies, biomass CHP heat pumps, and where solar energy use becomes more widespread. Now, none of those individual changes, you might think, well, they're a bit marginal. Individually, they all are a bit marginal. That's absolutely right. But if you accumulate them across 40 years, this is the sort of impact you can see. So the left-hand bar is um, energy use in, in, for heating UK homes in the year 2000 mainly gas. The second is uh, what would happen by 2050 under a business-as-usual scenario. Still gas, but through, uh, through, conventional, through gas boilers, uh, condensing gas boilers rather than conventional boilers. And the third is this scenario where we look, that we looked at, and the, the, the striking things are twofold. One is the types of energy used are, are far more diverse. You've not only got gas, you've got electricity, you've got heat pumps... You've got some solid, some biomass fuels. You've got a lot of solar. You've got some combined heat and power. But perhaps more interestingly, the, the, the size of the bar is much smaller. That's partly because we assumed homes might be a little bit cooler than they are now. But it's mainly because we've insulated them properly. It's not rocket science, actually, some of this. We did the same sort of analysis for transport uh, my colleagues who work more on transport than I do looked at a whole series of, of ways in which we could uh, in, in maintain accessibility but reduce the amount of travel that's done, essentially. So more local services, people travelling at slower speeds, cities built more compactly, m uh, measures to encourage non -car for it, uh, um, less car use, how we could use ICT to, to increase the amounts of teleworking and teleshopping to do that, for example. And modest reductions in air travel from, the, from where we are now. Again, individually, none of those changes makes a lot of difference. But when we crunched the numbers, we found that it has three significant effects. One, the total distance travelled can begin to fall. Actually, it has begun to stabilise in this country now. Second, the modal choice can change from predominantly cars to still, yeah, a lot of cars, but more cycling and walking and more public transport. 
And thirdly, the way we power the vehicles can change. So electric vehicles can become dominant with also with biofuels and some hydrogen fuels. And again, it's this combination of effects has a, the same sort of picture for energy demand in transport that we saw uh, for household heating. Moving from a picture today dominated by um, petrol and diesel uh, to a business-as-usual world in 2050 where it's just a bit more petrol and a bit more diesel, through to this hypothetical scenario <clears throat> where people's lifestyles change, where, you're not, where electricity, hydrogen, biodiesel take a much bigger share, but the dominant effect is that we actually use much less energy in transport whilst maintaining accessibility to the services that we all want and need. So my conclusions that I leave you to think about and hopefully challenge in the, uh, in, 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 in the, in the, the question and answer session are that really lifestyle change, because it combines technology and the way that technology is used, can be significant. We got those 50% reductions in energy use in, in homes and transport through a series of um, not particularly <laughs> radical measures. And if those came about, they would on their own, reduce UK CO2 emissions by 30%. 30% is quite a long way towards 80%, but it's nowhere near the whole way. So this agenda is not, on its own, a panacea at all. But I think it helps in one other critical way. When we calculated the cost of the energy system to do this, it came out at about £70 billion per year cheaper in 2050. That's about £2,000 a household. That's because energy is going to be quite expensive in 2050. So using less of it is quite a good idea economically. And also to pick up on the point that James made about where oil and gas comes from, if we can use less oil and gas, then we are far less at the mercy of uh, what one might consider to be less politically stable regimes than our own in the Middle East, and, and Russia in particular. So that's where I'll leave you and hand over to Brenda, who's going to say more about what individuals can do, I think. I hope. I think so. 